Luke chapter 4, and we're going to be picking up just after uh, where Doug ended last week. We'll be picking up at verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's interesting that as Jesus began his earthly ministry, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, began his earthly ministry, as we see in verse 14, in the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't believe that's by mistake. Jesus Christ is fully God, but he chose to set aside his own abilities in his divinity and to live this life by the power of the Holy Spirit day after day. So he spoke by the power of the Holy Spirit. He read the word by the power of the Holy Spirit. He healed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the scriptures will tell us that he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. I think the reason why he did that was because he wants to reveal to you and to me that all of us need to live our lives by the Spirit's power. That the Holy Spirit is an amazing person. You know, oftentimes I hear people talk about the Holy Spirit as though he's an it. He's not. He is a he. Um, he is uh, revealed as the third person of the Trinity. He's equal in substance and power and authority to God the Father and God the Son. We see him in the Old Testament in the aspect of creation. We see him in revelations. We see him in empowerment. In the New Testament, his, his ministry comes out even more so. We see him in the fact that he possesses an intellect. He has emotions. He has eternality. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. We see him in an aspect of common grace um, to all of humanity. What the Holy Spirit does is he is the giver of life. He is the giver of artistic ability. He's the giver of knowledge and reason. He's the giver of blessing. He's even the giver, Scripture tells us, of social morality. So he does that for every person that is in this world, the aspect of common grace. But the Holy Spirit does something even more specific for those who trust in him, for those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because for those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, he inspires Scripture that we're preaching from this morning. He also convicts us of sin. He regenerates the heart of the believer. He comforts. He defends. He enlightens the mind. He transforms us. The Holy Spirit's work, he's called the paraclete. The paraclete is an interesting word. It means that he is called the comforter or the counselor. The Holy Spirit regenerates us at salvation. He brings new birth. He brings life out of a dead person. 
Amen. He gives eternal security to you. He gives assurance to you. Jesus Christ, through his Holy Spirit, works this lifelong process of transformation. He empowers, he enlightens, he encourages, he changes, he comforts us. He is the potter and we are the clay. He is the one that is molding you and shaping you into the image of the Son. I often say to my clients that, uh, you know, I see my clients on a weekly basis usually, 45 minutes on a weekly basis. You don't need as much 45 minutes with a human counselor, James, as much as you need daily sessions with the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit does his work in our lives, he transforms us and he changes us. So it's not by mistake that, the, uh, that Jesus Christ, when he began his earthly ministry, began his earthly ministry by living in the power of the Holy Spirit. But what's the second thing we see in verse 14? It says that he returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and the reports of him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught. The second thing I find out about Jesus is not only that he's living by the power of the Holy Spirit, but he's preaching and he's teaching. We're going to see how he is going to minister to people by touching them and healing them. And we do believe in a God that can heal we believe in a God who desires to heal. I believe that. But the greatest healing that he wants to provide for us is not the physical healing. The greatest freedom that he wants to provide for us is not the financial freedom. The greatest freedom that he wants to provide for us is not earthly and temporal. The greatest freedom he wants to provide mankind is eternal and heavenly and supernatural. And that can only come by Christ. So when Jesus had the opportunity to go into a new town, what he did was he preached the word. So he was in the power of the spirit and then he proclaimed the gospel. He preached with clarity. There was no one that preached like him. He preached with passion. Can you imagine? You know, I mean, I know that you've got a great preacher over here and you've been listening to a great preacher and Doug for years. There is no one that preached like Christ. There was no one that could hold an audience's attention like Christ. There was no one that knew human hearts like Christ. So when he preached, people didn't sleep. When he preached, people were on the edge of their seats. But they were on the edge of their seats in one of two ways. They were either relying upon him and eager for more of him, or they were there to reject him and to rebel against him. And we'll see that dividing line this morning. So he taught in the synagogues and was being glorified by all. You know, I see this as a grand drama. I think we're going to see three scenes here that I'm just going to try to hit this morning. I'm not going to be able to get to the latter part of, of the uh, chapter. Three scenes I want you to consider in Act 1. Scene 1, he's in the synagogue in his own hometown. Scene 2, he is now out talking to people who were superficially believing in him. And then scene three, there's a seething wrath that is happening and they're seeking to destroy him. Well, let's look at scene one. Scene one, he goes back to his hometown in verse 16. It says, and he came to Nazareth. If you remember Nathaniel, I think it was, one of the early disciples, he said, what good comes out of Nazareth? It's kind of like I live in Buttsville. <laughs> I mean, when Amy and I bought this property and it was like our mailing address is going to be Buttsville. <laughs> Thankfully, she told me that 
you know, we could get a Belvedere mailing address. So that sounded a little bit better, you know. That's, but who great has ever come from Buttsville? Or Belvedere? Or Washington? Or Hope? Or the towns that surround here? What, who great has come from that, ter that territory, that area? This was the greatest person that has ever come out of Nazareth. And Jesus comes out and he comes back home to Nazareth where he was brought up. And I don't know about you, but when you have an opportunity to go back home, sometimes it is really cool and people are coming around you and they just can't wait. I bet you when you have teenagers that go away to college and they come back home, everyone is just eager to find them. Or somebody that's moved out of town and has come back and visiting the church again and they come back and people are surrounding them. It's probably what was happening here. Jesus was coming back home and everyone was saying, the rabbi's coming back. You know, Jesus, the little boy, Joseph's son, he's coming back home. We've got to go to the synagogue. He's going to be preaching in the synagogue today. What I find as well, it says that he came back to Nazareth where he was brought up and as was his custom. I find out a lot about Jesus here. Jesus made it his custom his habit, his lifestyle, his way of life to be among the community of believers. You know, there are some of us that um, forsake the community of believers. We come here every once in a while. We have some people that we call C&E Christians, you know. They come in Christmas and they come on Easter and that's about it. Jesus didn't forsake the gathering together of, of believers he wanted to be there in the temple. From a little boy, if you remember, you remember when he was 12 years old? And he's, um, now they're in the, um, uh, going back to Jerusalem, I believe it was. And what happened was that um, he was left behind. And where was he left behind? He was left behind studying in the temple, sitting there learning about God. And the family goes away and they go away a day later and they say, where's Jesus? And they have to double back and they find him where? In the temple. Learning from God and worshiping God. It was his habit and his custom. But I see not only his habit and custom to be in the, in the sanctuary here in the synagogue, but it was his habit and custom to, to read the word. Jesus Christ knew the word. Jesus Christ read the word. Jesus Christ meditated on the word. Jesus Christ loved the word. Now don't get mistaken. Jesus Christ was a baby just like you and me. He needed to learn to grow. The only difference was that he had no sin. But he was a babbling baby, just like our babbling babies. He had to learn to speak. He had to learn to read. He had to learn to write. And he grew in knowledge and wisdom and stature, as Luke tells us in Luke chapter 2. So he sat in the temple, in the, ta in the synagogue, day after day, hearing the word studying the word, meditating on the word, sitting under boring sermons, sitting under great sermons, sitting under sermon after sermon after sermon, hearing the word. And now this young man coming out of Nazareth has come back home. It says that he was given the opportunity to preach. Now they do it a little bit differently. I'm standing this whole time behind this pulpit. In that time, what they did was they would give you a scroll you would unroll the scroll, you would read the scroll standing, and then you would sit down and give the explanation. 
So you would read and then provide the explanation. Well, he unrolled the scroll, and you're probably very familiar with this passage in Isaiah 61. And he unrolled it to Isaiah 61, and he began. And he said this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. What do we find out about the Spirit here? Now, we've talked about him just a little bit earlier. What do we find about the Holy Spirit in just this one section? The Holy Spirit was upon Jesus, verse 18. The Holy Spirit anointed Jesus, verse 18. And the Holy Spirit sent Jesus in verse 18. Jesus Christ did everything by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's what we're called to do as well. Well, Jesus unearthed this passage, and he says that the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to do what? What has he anointed Christ to do? To preach good news, proclaim good news. Your message may say the gospel to the poor or good news to the poor. What God has done for us is this. He goes to those that are in need. He goes to those that are bankrupt. They're poor. I have nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. I'm bankrupt. He goes to those that are bound and are captives. He goes to those that are blind and can't see. And he goes to those that are burdened and who are oppressed. Those are the people that he goes to. Why? He speaks about those type of people, the broken, the bound, the blind, the burdened. Why? Because it's that person that recognizes their need. It's that person that recognizes that I have a need and I have no way to supply it. Jesus is going to give two illustrations a little bit later in this passage about two people that were at the end of their ropes. They were in ultimate need and they turned to the only one that could supply their need to God. Well, Jesus says that I'm coming to those who are bankrupt. It's interesting, if you remember the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount with this beatitude. You remember what the very first beatitude was? Blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt. Now, is Jesus talking about material or earthly poverty? In some ways, possibly. But that's not the essence here. He's not talking about spirit uh, physical poverty or material poverty he's talking about a spiritual poverty that we all have if we don't have christ because all i have is christ he doesn't talk about only captivity on an earthly level there were many slaves that were here in this time yes but he wasn't talking primarily about the earthly or temporal captivity and bondage he's talking about a spiritual bondage that all of us have if we don't have Christ. There's some of us who are blind. Some of us who have been blind since birth. Some of us who have been blind because of some sickness or accident. And there are many people that Jesus is going to heal physically from their blindness. He's not talking, though, primarily about a physical blindness. He is talking primarily about a spiritual blindness. And when he talks about oppression, if I were to take this microphone around and ask you about the oppression that you go through and the, and the burdens that you have to bear, I know that we would sit here for hours upon hours going through all of the burdens that you're going through. But Jesus is not talking primarily about an oppression or a burdening on an earthly or physical or temporal level. He is talking about a burden or an oppression on a spiritual level. And he wants to say that all I can offer you is me. And that's what he says. 
Jesus Christ offers us the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is this good news to evangelize those who do not know Christ and basically say that for the hopeless and the helpless, I give you Christ. The gospel is this opportunity to encourage you for those that are discouraged. It is this opportunity to preach emancipation for those who have been bound. It is this message of enlightenment for those who are blind. That is what the gospel message is. It is the greatest message that this world has ever known. And that's why Paul could say, how can I be ashamed of the gospel? For it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Jesus takes the scroll and he closes it up and he sits down and every eye is fixed on him like a laser beam. Every eye in that synagogue, it says in verse 20, the end of verse 20, all the eyes in, of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. They're sitting there in anticipation. It was like a laser beam. There was no, there was no um, trivial sermon here. You have Alistair Begg has this quote, I like it. It says, sermons without Christ are this, trivial, legalistic, weightless, joyless, boring. <laughs> Jesus makes this audacious claim that he is your only God and Savior. Act two. So Jesus sits down and he begins by saying that he began to say today, verse 21, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Audacious, audacious claim. All spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. Now we see this. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? So now initially, it's like, wow, that guy was powerful. I mean, I haven't heard a sermon like that. Now remember, this is a really small town. Nazareth only has about 20,000 people. And they have a number of synagogues, but there were not major rabbis in this area. I mean, if you were a really good teacher in this area, they're probably going to take you out and take you to a larger city. So Nazareth is Buttsville. No place, right? <laughs> so when you get a rabbi that can preach like Jesus did, it's shocking to them. And they're caught on the edge of their seats. But then there was a turn. It happened so quickly. Isn't this Joseph's son? Now, it could be that, and I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt on this one, it could be that they were saying, boy, that guy, I knew him when he was a little kid in junior church. He used to run up and down. You remember when pastor used to preach and he would run up and down the aisle and, you, and now look at him. It could be that. I don't think so. Because look, it says here, is this not Joseph's son? And then Jesus immediately said this, Doubtless you will quote this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Okay, now you may not understand what he means by that, so let me try to tell you. What was happening before was out, before he had come to Nazareth, before he had come to his hometown, he was out at a number of different lands, and he was healing a number of different people. So they were healing, hearing of his preaching, his proclamation, his power of the Holy Spirit, and what he was doing in these other lands. And they were seeing that demonstration and they were expecting that he was going to come home. Okay, you proclaimed, good. Now show us something. Do something. And they're waiting. 
And so in the back of their mind, there's this sense of, isn't this just Joseph's son? What's he getting up here saying that the Messiah has come? Okay, prove it to us. Show us something. And doesn't that sound like, if you're familiar with the Gospels, doesn't that sound like what the Pharisees did oftentimes? Jesus, we want to believe in you, but show us a sign. And Jesus would say, the only sign I'm giving you is the sign of Jonah, the sign of judgment. Jesus actually gave a parable, if you remember, of a rich man and Lazarus. And they, Lazarus had gone to heaven, and the rich man had gone to hell. And, and Lazarus, uh, the rich man said, please, send somebody back to tell the people that I'm in here in hell and that they should be warned. And Jesus said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not hear a sign. Many people saw Christ do miraculous things, but then they still rejected him. People are not transformed by the external. People need to be transformed internally. So there was a superficial aspect that was happening to these people, and they started by belittling him. They said, is this not Joseph's son? Belittlement. But keep going. Physician, heal yourself. The yourself is Nazareth. So physician, if you've been out in these foreign lands healing other people, it's time to come back home and heal us. Heal yourself. Heal your buttsville. Heal your Nazareth. Okay. They belittled him. But the second thing they did to him was they dishonored him. It says, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And Jesus said, truly, I say it to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. They dishonored him. They not only belittled him, but now they're dishonoring him. They're discrediting him. They are diminishing him, and they're saying, who are you? Now, they were just praising him and saying that he's a wonderful man, and they just sat at the edge of their seats hearing the sermon, and they were all glorifying him. And now, what's happening? Slowly but surely, it is diminishing. One person quoted it this way, their enthusiasm was chilled into indifference and then to skepticism. That's really interesting. Well, let's keep reading. Now, Jesus heard this, I should say this, back up one second. What was amazing about Christ was not only that he was passionate and clarifying in his preaching, but he knew human hearts. They hadn't even said these words yet, but Christ could look into every human heart and know what they needed. So he gave them a story. He gave them stories of two prophets from the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha, and two stories. He says, verse 25, by I tell you in truth, I tell you, there was many widows in Israel in the day of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. This, this started to annoy them. And I don't know if you're catching it. But what God was saying was this. In the Old Testament, when my prophet came, you, my people, rejected the prophet. So God withdrew his blessing from you as his people, and he sent that good news and that message to a pagan land, Zarephath. It's a pagan land. So you have a land where people are not worshiping God, 
Then you've got the lowest of the low, a widow in a pagan land. And there's so many widows here in Jewish women that you're not blessing because they're rejecting you. And there's this one woman who Elijah was sent to. Now, if you read the story in the Old Testament, what happened was there's a famine in the land. Elijah's in need. And God sends Elijah to this widow's home. And it's just this widow and her child. And they have enough bread for one meal. And Elijah comes into their home and says, make me a meal. And God promises that he will bless you. And I don't know about you, but I may say, take a hike. <laughs> I've got one meal. She thinks I'm going to have this one meal and then my kid and I are going to die. And I'm going to give this one meal to this stranger who comes in. But what God does is something amazing in this widow's heart. She opens this widow's heart to give generously. It's interesting that if you look statistically, the impoverished are oftentimes the most generous people. Those that are in need are the ones that tend to give. Like the widow's mite, you know, she had nothing and she gives that last mite. She gives it all. And it's often funny that those who have so much become so stingy. Well, she is in need, and she hears Elijah say that, you know what, if I give this to you, then you'll continue to supply for me. So what does she do? She acts in faith. Story number two, Elisha, the second prophet, he came to the nation of Israel. And in the nation of Israel, this prophet was once again rejected. He was given an opportunity to preach, thus says the Lord, and the people rejected him. So what did he, God do? He took his ministry away from Israel, and he took it to this man, this man Naaman. This man Naaman was not only a pagan, but the double whammy is the fact that he is a leper. A leper, if you're familiar with Old Testament law, a leper was an outcast. You push him out of the city. So this guy is not only not a person within the Jewish faith, but he is a leper. And what God did was he chose to heal him. This leper, this pagan, he healed him physically, but he also healed him spiritually. And what Christ was saying is this, that this gospel message is not an exclusive message to one nationality. It's not an exclusive message to one heritage. It is a message of hope that will go across the world to every tongue, every tribe, every person. Act number two. Jesus is in the synagogue, act one, preaching. Act number two, there's a level of superficial acceptance. I think we accept you, but I really don't know if I like this message. Act number three, seething wrath. What happens? Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. So they went from worshiping him to belittling him to dishonoring him to rejecting him now resenting him and now they want to destroy him 
I don't know how long this was, but this wasn't a long, this wasn't over weeks or months. This is probably the same day. He's preaching. He gives an illustration, an explanation. Then he gives an illustration from Scripture. And they went from sitting at the edge of their seats to trying to throw him off a cliff. No neutrality. It's interesting that when Jesus Christ is revealed for who he is, you will do one of two things. You will bend your knee in awe and wonder, or deep down in your heart, you will be angry and reject him. I think it was C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said this. He said that if you're going to be really honest about who Christ is, you will have to look at him in one of three ways. You will either have to look at what he says in his messages and say that he is a liar. Because Jesus Christ clearly said, I am the Messiah. It has been fulfilled today in your hearing. So he's either a liar, bold-faced liar, or C.S. Lewis said the second thing is, he's a lunatic. He's nuts. You know, people walk around today thinking that they're Jesus Christ. They're nuts, right? Or he's Lord. And he's the same Christ today. And as you sit here today, you have probably sat here, some of you have sat here week after week, month after month, year after year, and heard gospel message after gospel message after gospel message. You heard of your sin. You heard of the fact that there's a holy God who demands righteousness. You heard of a God who has provided the only way of salvation to your son, through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you've walked out of here and said, man, pastor was on today. But then you go on to your next thing. And you've never bent your knee to Christ. I pray today is the opportunity that you would surrender to him and to recognize that all I have is Christ. Some of us have sat here week after week, month after month, year after year, and heard great messages, and we are believers. But we haven't been as passionate about the church, and we have not been as passionate about his word, and we have not been as passionate about Christ as we need to be. We have not been as passionate about the gospel that needs to go out to those who are blind, and those who are broken, and those who are captive, and those who are burdened. And you need to go out in the power of Christ, in the power of his Holy Spirit, because he loves you, and he loves those people, and he wants that message to go out today. There's really no neutrality when it comes to Christ. You will love him or you will hate him. You will serve him or you will reject him. You will listen to him or you will ignore him. You will worship him or you will worship something else. I like this section here in verse 30. It says, but. It just starts, but. They're ready to push him off the cliff, but. It was not the father's intention that his son die on that day. It was his father's intention that his son die in a future day. In Isaiah, another passage in Isaiah, love this section. It says in Isaiah 53, it says, um, Surely he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us have turned to his own way. But the Lord, the Father, has laid upon his Son the iniquity of us all. So Jesus Christ was going to die eventually at the hands of an angry mob. But it wasn't going to be today. So what Jesus Christ did 
supernaturally perhaps, was he walked right past the crowd and he walked away. It's a sad verse when you think about it. Jesus walked away and they were driving him away. Let it not be said of us that that become our passion. Last thing I want you to consider before we go is this. Can you hold your finger there and go with me to Isaiah chapter 61? In Isaiah chapter 61, Jesus Christ is um, reading through this section. Now, it's the exact same section, Isaiah 61. But I want you to look at verse 2 because there's something interesting that Christ did. You know, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he, the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's exactly where Christ stopped. He stopped right there. you have any idea why he would have stopped there? Because look at the rest. It says, the day of vengeance of God is right after that. It's the, it's the end of the verse. The, and the day of the vengeance of God to comfort all those who mourn. He didn't end with that section. And I, I think there's a reason. What God was promising us in Christ's first advent, when Christ came here the first time, was a year of the Lord's favor. It was a year of grace. It was a time of grace that he, it, was, it was hearkening back to the Sabbath year. And that was part of the Old Testament. In the Sabbath year, every seven years, what you would do is lay the land at rest. And then if you remember, there was a year of Jubilee, which was every 50th year, which was an incredible thing. And in the 50th year, the land would lay at rest, your debts would be relaxed, and prisoners and captives and slaves would be set free. The year of Jubilee. So what, what Christ was saying is this, that at my first advent, I am proclaiming freedom for you, freedom from your bondage, freedom from your blindness, freedom from your captivity. I am here to give you grace. It is an amazing thing. There's a song, I think it was Andre Crouch, he used to sing it. It says, freedom, oh, I long for the day when I can say that I have freedom. Jesus came my way, what a happy day. Walking in darkness to the light, he set me free. He gave me the right to say he, he who the sun sets free, is free indeed. Oh, I'm free from the chains that bound me. Free since the day he found me. Oh, he opened up the way. He brought a better day. I was living in sin and the peace, seeming peace within, till Jesus set me free when I let him in. And he who the sun sets free is free indeed. I love that song. Because that freedom is a freedom of hope. It's a freedom of joy. It's a freedom of peace. That is a freedom that captives need to hear. And on his first advent, the Lord Jesus Christ says that I am proclaiming that for you. And that is a message that we have the privilege of preaching and teaching and living and demonstrating by the Spirit's power today to a lost and dying world. But there's a second day that Christ talks about at the end of Isaiah, and it's the day of vengeance. It's a day that we don't want to tend to think about, but the fact of the matter is, is this. Like it or not, every single person in this room is going to take their last breath. Unless Christ returns, we're all going to die. And all of us are going to stand before God and have to give an account for our lives. We will give an account 
every thought you've ever had, every word that you've ever spoken, every attitude and every action you will have to give an account for. You will stand naked before God and he will know you better than you know yourself. And there is really only one answer. We sang it this morning. All I have is, is Christ. Because see, I can know and you can know that if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the one that comforts you with his salvation. He is the one that clothes you with his righteousness. He is the one that I can stand in and know that there is therefore now no condemnation, no separation from his love. The sad thing is, is that there may be some in this room, I hope not, that hear the word, reject the word, ignore the word, and you will not hear, well done, good and faithful servant. At the end, you will hear something other, the words of a judge, not the words of a savior. I pray today, as um, Hebrews said, today is the day of salvation. I pray that you would open your heart to him. Last thing I want you to consider before we leave, it's just one simple word that has been jumping out at me all week as I've been going through this passage. Go back to verse 21 of uh, Luke 4. It's just one word I want you to consider as we leave. And the one word is today. Today. My wife wants me to clean my room and I say I'll put it off tomorrow. I've got a paper that's due this week and I'll wait to the last moment. You know, some of us tend to procrastinate and we put things off. What Christ said is that today is the day. There should be a sense of urgency as we walk out of this building to recognize that um, there is only one God, only one Savior. Today is the day of your salvation. Bend your knee to him. Turn to him. Would you pray with me?